I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The inflation genie is out of the bottle. Can we get it back in there before it does too much damage? Central banks are trying to tackle it by racing each other to put up interest rates, possibly to levels we haven't seen in years, despite the fact that we are all leveraged to the hill with our mortgages. How's that going to work out? And can they do that without causing a recession? And does monetary policy actually do what central bankers think it will? Or is it up to the government to fix the problem and not by putting up taxes, which is what Rishi Sunak's just done in the UK? In short, is everyone doing exactly the wrong thing? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, before the pandemic, the uh, the world was wondering what had happened to inflation, wasn't it? I mean, there was a, a lot of talk about deflation brought about by the globalization of uh, goods. You know, the production was lowering costs. Wages were going down along with lower commodity prices. So in a way, Steve, you know, in, inflation has kicked in because all those things have been taken away from us, aren't they? We've gone the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, globalization is temporarily broken. Labor supply has been cut short because of COVID. Commodity prices are rising, whereas they were falling before mm. because of uh, all the uh, p- p- production has fallen uh, initially because of COVID and then because of the war. So does that mean it could just as easily turn back the other way? Not because of the... The fact we're facing supply constraints. Right, which is what we were talking about last week. You you simply can't, uh, you know, produce oil more cheaply anymore because it just takes more energy to get out of the ground. Mm. And at some point, the energy return on energy invested becomes so low that it's not even worth getting it out. So is that, which is what we were talking about last week, is that the root cause of all of this then? I mean, Largely, largely, yeah. Because the other thing is wage push inflation, which we've been seeing because somehow, and no one's quite, I've not heard a sensible explanation of this yet, the great resignation, the fact that people are... A large part of it is because governments are finally running large deficits, right. much larger than they should have, than they, than they needed to run over the last 40 years, but they haven't run them. So you've had this diminishing demand pressure coming from a lack of creation of fiat-based money into a fiat-based economy, and therefore that's part of why wages have fallen over time. And then suddenly when COVID hits, deficits of 20% of GDP, enormous... Uh, monetary demand going out there, turning up as demand for houses, the mm. housing bubbles we're seeing everywhere, and shortages of labour. Okay, for because people aren't. I mean, you, you've, obviously, you're not. Uh, there isn't a great deal of demand for people to be um, working in the airline industry right now or the hospitality industry. But there's enormous demand for goods and services. Right. Uh, we, so you're saying goods, the government mainly goods, not services. So the government has created money. That's created demand. And yeah, and that's, the, and that's giving us part of the wage period. That's why you can afford to resign. Right. But why now. wouldn't we be seeing GDP shooting up to astronomical levels? If, I mean, it has obviously it has bounced back quite quickly. But yeah, you, but it, well, it's the fastest. I've seen people say it's the fastest recovery mm. in post-war history, actually probably in history. And that is because of government money? Because being... governments spend that amount of money. Right. This is why we should learn the lesson from this, mm. rather late in the, in the maturity of capitalism to learn it. We should learn that government spending boosts economic activity. Right. Okay. Now, neoclassical economics tells you government spending reduces economic activity. 
okay? Because people say, well, there's more spending happening now, therefore there's got to be more taxes in the future to balance it, therefore I'll save now, and that off offsets the impact of the uh, of people spending more money. Well, that's been hit, smashed in the face by reality. With the extra government spending, people are spending more themselves, and there's been an increase in demand. So you'd say before this we went, so that's why we've got inflation now. Before, before the pandemic, yeah. we had deflation because the opposite was happening. Governments weren't spending. Mm. We've been through 10 years of austerity. But that's only one of many factors. I mean, as you said, there's also the, the shift of production to China. Yeah. Now, that's run its course because, mm. when you, I mean, when, when I spend my time in a Chinese city, and I then go to a, to um, an English one. Yeah, uh, I don't see a huge difference in living standards anymore. Mm. The wages and prices are different, but the quality of life of people in general. And tr- trust me, I see far far more homeless people on the streets of London yeah. than I've ever seen in a Chinese city. Can you get, can you get decent coffee in China though? Yeah, well, okay. I mean, there so, are I mean that's, a, that's all. That's all. You get a tea. You could definitely get a better tea. <laughs> um, well, you, get, you get to say that's all you and care Mautai. about. Mao You can't get Mao like that over here. Right. Um, so, yeah, but, but, but fundamentally, we've had a deflation pressure from relocating production, from particularly from America to China. Yeah. Okay, that was a huge cause. But of, they were running out of steam, weren't they? I mean, even before. They were running out of steam because finally wages have risen sufficiently. Yeah. Living standards are such that China doesn't uh, need that desperate export push anymore. So we get. Because from 2012 to 2016, mm. producer prices in China mm. were actually falling uh, over 5% year on year in 2016. Mm. So uh, they were going the other way. So, you know, they, they were on the road to deflation. It, it, they climbed out of it, but it was back in negative territory again in 2019 mm. and early 2020. CPI was holding up. So producer prices, the input prices into factories were going down. Mm. CPI was only holding up and it was fairly flat because of food costs yeah. had shot up because of the, the swine flu. Mm. But otherwise, they could have found uh, that you know CPI was going down as well. Mm. So they were basically on the verge of deflation before all of mm. this kicked in. So which is worse, deflation or inflation? Well, they're both... <laughs> You, you generally want a degree of, of a small degree of inflation because what that actually does is encourage you to spend the money you've got in your bank account. Yeah. Okay. Because then uh, it's going to go down. It's going to go down. It's like the, the form of gazillion taxation. Yeah. Uh, so a small amount is actually beneficial in terms of stimulating a level of demand. Mm. You, know, you look at the, you look at the level of the uh, measures of the velocity of money of zero maturity, which is the best guide we've ever produced to the actual money stock, and the. The, the velocity used to be one point, it would turn over 1.8 times per year up to the 1970s inflation. Mm. It shot right up to about three. Now it's down below one. Yeah. They've copped the stop. The Fed stopped producing the figures, but that was the last the last level. So deflation would have the opposite. I mean, that would be like a downward spiral. Well, deflation, go, I, may as, I may as well keep the money in the bank again because yeah, anything de- I want to buy is going to be cheaper next That's right. Year. So deflation pushes it down even further. Inflation encourages you to spend. So if you if you want a level of spending and a small amount of inflation is a good thing. But uh, but this the inflation we're having now isn't your daddy's inflation. Because the inflation we had back in the uh, 1970s was a combination of several things. It was, first of all, an absolutely booming economy. Mm-hmm. So wage rises were, were, could be demanded by workers, and you had strong trade unions back then, yeah. um, so they could bargain on behalf of workers. And you also had, uh, because of the high level of demand, you had incredible pressure on commodity producers. So commodity prices were going up as well. And what you then got was a, 
uh, demand for higher wage payments, demand for higher resource payments, and that caused increase in the money supply, not the other way around. Mm. Uh, because as, as Basil Moore showed brilliantly back with the, the endogenous money stock paper back in 1979, uh, it's the lines of credit that companies used to have meant that if they got higher wage demands and higher resource demands, they could access like an unused part of their credit card to get the money to pay for it. So what you had was inflation caused by contests over income shares, and that's both income shares between labour and capital in the in the developed world, and between commodity and non-commodity producing nations in terms of international trade. Uh, then that was a demand-driven. Uh, in inflation, and it also occurred at a time of a huge credit boom. Mm. Now, the end of that was actually a credit bust that began in 1974, and that's global. And it wasn't on the scale of what we've been through since, but it was the first credit bust uh, of any real global significance since the Great Depression. So that credit boom was almost the same idea, you know, of money being pumped into the economy. It just wasn't government money, it was, yeah, it was bank money. private bank money, yeah. yeah. And, you know, like you, you, I, don't, I remember this vividly because 1974, I was 21, mm. and, and, and uh, Sydney was absolute boom town at the time. And if you looked from Sydney University over the skyline of Sydney, you just saw kangaroo crane after kangaroo crane, or they're actually Australian inventions, the cranes that are designed to build tall buildings, everywhere, hundreds of them, because there were so many skyscrapers being built at the time in the middle of this huge building boom. Mm. It all collapsed in 74. And what you saw was this huge increase in credit-based demand and then negative credit coming out of it. And that happened in America, and it was a global phenomenon. Uh, so that was our first real credit bust. So the what gave us the stagflation was actually this continued pressure from the booming economy for higher wages and for higher raw material prices. And then with the credit bust, the credit bust wiped out your investment. Mm. So you had a continued momentum for, infl- for price rises while investment had stalled completely because of the collapse of credit. So it's different this time because the money hasn't been provided by banks. It's been provided by governments. Back then, the banks obviously wanted the money to be paid back. So the increase in, in spending came from credit, which then gets destroyed as the banks get paid back. Well, now, yeah. they, now the governments don't necessarily – they will, of course, but the governments don't necessarily need to say, well, OK, we're going to no, they, they, they destroy carry, that the, money. The debt they carry is the record of the amount of money they've created. Yeah. And that money – it's exactly the same where the debt that private banks create is a record of the money they've created as mm. well. But that debt means that people who borrow the money have to pay the banks back, right. whereas the extra government money, the people don't have to pay the government back. It's the government's self-financing engine. So, um, but that that is a large core of the reason why we're getting demand pressure from government spending this time round. So that that is a, a variation with the old inflation. But the other is we didn't have resource shortages, hmm. and now we've really got them. Yeah, uh, you know, if we go back. So, how much of this is how much of this do you think is that resource shortage, and how much of it is? The uh, the wage demands because if you look I at because the, the, they both have been quite drastic haven't they so in the UK the unemployment's down to three point nine percent whether you believe the numbers or not because mm. obviously there's a question about how many of them are payroll how many of them are temporary workers mm. so you can do wonders with these numbers but you're presumably following the same approach three point nine percent now ten years ago it was over eight percent. Uh, so you know, there's, when you see that sort of drop in it's unemployment, huge. that's yeah. a big that's a big change. So the, of course, there's a demand for wages. How much of that is uh, the the, infl- the inflation we're seeing is because of that, and how much of it is because of supply chain costs, and how much of it is because of uh, of oil? I think a lot of it's supply chain costs, and because COVID's added to those dramatically. Because we, we part of what we had during the period of globalization was a inc- incredible extension of the length of the supply chain, the number of countries. I mean, I think there's this iPhone you know, I've got here. Mm. I think there's over 
parts from over 100 countries yeah. going to making the damn thing, which means you've got to ship components from 100 countries to where they get assembled. And and that is incredibly fragile. And of course, COVID comes along and bang, the supply chain breaks down because you can't ship the stuff or the factory has workers who can't go to work and so on. And suddenly there's a shortage of chips. That feeds into cost cost pressures uh, for capacity to produce. So I, I think a, a huge part of it is a supply chain breakdown. And we're going to have to reverse now the uh, industrial structure we built up through globalization, where we have you know, diversified production across the entire planet. Yeah. But and, unless, I mean, COVID dies down uh, and, uh, you know, life starts to return to normal, those supply chains could pick up again, couldn't they? I think after one little – this this has been a big scare. Mm. I mean, if you were a, na- a national uh, leader – But memories are short. I mean, I, yeah. I, I know what you, you're saying. You're going to yeah. say, yeah, we've, we've, we've been shocked by this. But we talked last week about how – the oil crisis in the 1970s. We, yeah. we should have said, oh, we should look at renewables now. And we should look at... But we didn't. We, we just... We just, I, we I, just I, I think this is this is more existential. Mm. I mean, this, this is, and this is the way that climate scientists are looking at the situation we're in, that we've treated uh, global warming and our resource availability as to optimization question. How do you do things the best? What's you, know, you don't want to you don't want to reduce global warming too much. It might cost you too much money. Right. Type stuff. So you're saying we might buy still buy iPhones from America, but America's going to be less reliant on all the They're supply chains. To to, you can bring the stuff back onshore and produce right. it domestically. Right. And then, that, and, then we'll, and, then, and then we'll try and do an, a, a British version of the iPhone. <laughs> can you imagine? There's some things that can't be done. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, like I, I'm involved in a political party, as you know, which was talking about electric car manufacturing. Mm. And the lead that Tesla has technologically over the other companies is so enormous um, that the whole thought of being able to produce a national car, I, I said, look, I'm sorry, I'm very highly sceptical about that idea. Um, but... Yeah, what you what you're going to have is a level of onshoring, a radical return to onshoring rather than offshoring. Uh, you're running out of resources themselves, so you've got to get away from fossil fuel inputs to other sources of energy. Uh, this is crunch time stuff, mm. and I, we we are not going to have the luxury of forgetting as we did. No, back but in none the of this is going to push prices down. Huh? Is it? This isn't no, going to put, this is it, actually it, going to push prices up even supply. more. Well, but the question is, what do the prices do to the consumer price index? Mm. Because the consumer price index is based on the expected consumption bundle of the average median consumer. Yeah. Okay. Now. What's even though workers have been screwed by having their job shipped off over, off, over, overseas and so on, part of the salve they were given is well, you know, it'll cost you less to buy those goods and services because they're going to come in from cheap Chinese labour. Blah blah blah. Um, well, now that's disappearing as well. And what that means is a large part of what used to be the consumption bundle of the bundle of the working and middle class will cease being affordable. So it will actually drop off the CPI at some point. And the CPI won't be an accurate guide to the increase in prices. People don't seem too concerned about those jobs going overseas, though, do they? Because we've got 3.9% of people uh, unemployed. You know, it's a little close to a, close to an all-time low. Everyone seems to be working. Mm-hmm. So, they are, you know, so they're not too worried about losing their jobs to overseas right now. What they would be worried about is the fact if something's yeah. produced locally, it's going to cost more than if it's produced overseas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what it means is they, they won't, they, 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 they're going to be forced to want to have wage rises because the cost of living is going up. Mm. Um, but their capacity to get those wage rises... You know, I mean, it, 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 we, well, we're seeing that. I mean, the, the, the talk about the inflation rate, 
this year is uh, is well above, you know, possibly 8% or 10%. There's no way in the world wages are going to keep track with no, that. No, no. Mm. The workers, again, if you had the unions that we had back in the 1970s, they might have been able to bargain over it and you could have got a wage price spiral out of it. Mm. But with this year, it's likely to have a, a you know initial pressure for higher wages uh, from, from firms trying to get workers. But... Ultimately, there'll be no bargaining power for the workers to continue bargaining for sustained wage rises. So, uh, you mm. know, I think you're potentially going to see Arab Spring type effects in developed countries because with prices rising and you're not getting the higher wages. Um, wow. be, you know, you are we going to be toppling uh, statues of Boris Johnson? Uh, if they existed. Uh, Maybe we should put them up so we can knock them down. <laughs> Good idea. Let's start building them now. So uh, what about um, – I'm only going to ask you this question just to see you get angry. Oh, good. What, what about those people who say, well, actually, no, the real reason we're seeing inflation now – I don't think many people – agree with this now, mm. thankfully, although I suspect Rishi Sunak probably does. The people who are saying, well, the reason we've, we've got inflation now is because there has been too much money created. Government you know, the government money. has created yeah, the money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they've expanded the money supply. Therefore, each pound is worth less because there's so many more of them. That's most likely the lesson, inverted commas, we're going to learn out of this, unfortunately. Mm. Okay. The, but that, I, I, that's all bunkum. So even the Bank of England agrees that that's bunkum. There we go. It's bunkum. But of course, you know, people like John Hearn, for example, you would have seen John Hearn stuff on Twitter. This continued belief in monetarism mm. that money drives prices, when in fact, when you look empirically, prices drive money. Yeah. Because um, you know, I asked my mum the other day, I said, how much money is there in circulation at the moment? She didn't have a clue. I said, Silly woman. I know. I said, more or less than it was a year ago. And she didn't <laughs> She didn't know. So, um, yeah. Your expectations can't be rational, so, obviously. Uh, no. Yeah. It's, and so, you know, it's, how do you make decisions on uh, how much you're going to pay for stuff yeah, without yeah. knowing how much money there is, you know, in circulation? And what the rate of growth of it is. And she said yeah. she doesn't understand. So, uh, oh, yeah. Oh. Anyway. She fails economics, obviously. <laughs> she didn't do it, you know, didn't study it. That's why she's uh, yeah, got her feet on the ground, perhaps. Mm. And yet, you know, we've got the Bank of England there, you know, who even though they say, well, okay, we mm. accept that the, yeah. the supply of money has got nothing to do with inflation necessarily, they're still there saying, but we're going to change interest rates to try and uh, moderate yeah. your behaviour. And this was, um, you know, when you look at Milton Friedman's logic uh, that gave us the uh, monetarism and the whole idea of an optimal quantity of money, mm. what he argued was that people would expect inflation to continue occurring because they expected the money supply growth to occur, and therefore you had to break the expectations of rising money supply. And that was the rationale for putting up interest rates during the, uh, the Vokler period in America. Mm. Now, Look how that worked the out. argument was, huh? Look how that worked well, out. Well, it worked very well because it caused a recession. Yeah. Uh, but what Milton said was, oh, people just adjust their expectations. Okay, there'd be a small fall uh, in economic activity for a while, and you'd reverse the rise in economic activity caused because of accelerating inflation. He's Nehru nonsense. Um, but, but in fact, what happened was a good old-fashioned recession, which broke the back of the, of the labor unions, meant they had to accept no, you know, not marketing for wage rises or expect, accept in, in wage increases less than inflation for a while. Uh, and that's certainly like in Australia, that, the, that really did discipline the ACTU. They no longer went for wage rises. And they agreed to the government to, to a compromise that meant part of what were like nationally agreed wage rises were turned into increases in superannuation instead. Okay, so the anti-inflationary stuff that came out of that uh, was a consequence of it causing a recession, not just a, a case of people adjusting their expectations, but an old-fashioned recession that break the bargaining power of workers. Now, that's, that's just gone completely. Now, there is no bargaining power for workers anymore. Yeah. So that's why I, I don't expect uh, the, the classical wage price spiral going on. But what you are going to see, and increasingly so, is falling supply 
and that causing rising prices because the falling supply increases the per unit costs of firms. Mm. So, and I'm trying to figure out whether actually a wage spiral is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm all for it's unions. It's a good thing. But, it's a good but, thing because but, that's what causes firms to invest. Right. And this was oh, because they start to look at if yeah, it gets you, too you, expensive, they look at alternative yeah, technologies. Yeah, and that's like that's again why did why did the industrial revolution start in in Scotland rather than France? Right. One of the reasons was and I've I've done some good economic history papers. I can't recall the the authors off the top of my head, but some good economic history papers showing that the spinning jenny, which basically mm. replaced six workers yeah. with the machinery yeah, yeah. driven by steam or water. I'm cutting power. you short because we've, you've mentioned the spinning jenny. Uh, we've all heard it before. You've mentioned it at least 20 times. In, I in, don't in care. 21. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't worth displacing French workers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so it was worth so displacing Scottish. Right. So we, okay. should, so we shouldn't worry about it, in other words. If we've got it a wage spiral, of, it's, it's part of the evolution cycle of capitalism. Right. The Goodwin model, which is a brilliant innovation by Richard Goodwin that I've built on ever since, uh, basically showed that if you have the wage pressure, then you will get the innovation. Right. Okay. So how far does the central bank have to go then? So in the, in the UK interest case, rates up. Yeah. Not very far at all because the huge level of private debt right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. This is back to the debt deflation issues that I've focused on for so long. Uh, and how damaging is it going to be? Is it going to be well, a recession? It, so it, the, it the, the, be, forecast, the Bank of England's yeah. forecast, first of all, for this year, they're saying GDP growth will go from – uh, well, they were forecasting this year. They were saying growth was going to be seven and a quarter percent. Now, nominal terms. Yeah. Mm. Now they're saying it's going to be three, three and three quarter percent this nominal. year. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, still seems pretty high though, doesn't it? I mean, if we look at 1998 to 2007, it was two, two and three quarter percent. That nominal or real? There, I'm not sure what figures you're looking at. There. I think I'm looking for this year, next year. Wouldn't matter too much, would well, it? They normally talk in post-inflation terms. If you're saying seven percent, they're expecting a seven percent real yeah. inflation adjusted which is huge yeah now three percent is still huge three percent as it turns yeah the, so they're still expecting a high level of growth whichever, yeah. whichever way you look at it they're still expecting a high level of growth way above where it was in yeah. the in the early 2000s but if they put even up, though we've yeah. got this high inflation and they, they they're trying to they're trying to put a lid on it and if they put a lid on the interest rates with the level of private debt people have now then that's going to cause a credit crunch. Yeah. So we'll have a credit crunch recession. So these are somewhat optimistic figures. Somewhat. <laughs> so negative rather than positive. Mm. So, uh, but if you've got slow growth, do you actually, I mean, how much of, if you've got slow growth with prices going up, you know, how, how much of is inflation actually going to do the job? You know, if, if prices keep on rising, we are just going to buy less. We sort of well, we'll be forced to, and that's why I say the consumption bundle is going to change. Mm. Because if you find as, as workers you can't afford to buy a whole range of products that you used to take for granted, um, then your standard of living will fall. But it won't necessarily turn up in the CPI because over time, not straight away, obviously, the CPI will be adjusted. Things that which were in the workers' consumption bundle falls out. Theatre tickets were an obvious case of that. Yeah. Uh, but that's you know, also COVID-affected. But, yeah, a whole range of things people used to consume and the prices of those things used to be taken into account in the CPI are not going to be there anymore. So uh, what about companies then? If, uh, if you've got uh, lower demand... Uh, companies are going to have spare capacity. They want to use up that capacity. They're going to drop their prices to try and use up that capacity to try and keep demand going. I mean, that's going to—that's the sort of thing that slows down inflation, isn't it? Once you start seeing demand being destroyed, prices automatically are going to come down because people. Automatically are st- is a bad word. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, but, com- but companies will have to choose, won't they? What do we do with this spare capacity? Do we just leave well, it there, or do we? 
depends on, on how much of their fixed costs are versus their variable costs. And, of course, and how much the variable costs rise because yeah. of falling output. That's yeah. the other point I made last week. Mm. You know, that falling output means rising variable costs, not falling variable costs. So um, it's, it's going to be a very tough period to be in manufacturing. Yeah. And the Bank of England says CPI is going to grow uh, 5.75% on average across this year. Mm. Average weekly wages, wages will only rise by three and three quarter percent. So we are all going to be that much worse off mm, at, mm. at the end of this year. And I think that's 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 a realistic expectation. Right. Because we're, we're, I mean, the, the the point which people don't have their heads around because we've never thought about this properly is the extent to which we're dependent upon energy slaves. Mm. The wonderful uh, Buckminster Fuller came out with the term, sitting in a traffic jam apparently, uh, and just looked at all the cars and the people next to him and thought, how many people would it take to push that car? And he then worked out that each person effectively had 500 people pushing their car. <laughs> okay. Now, if we get to the stage where there's only 100 people pushing the car, mm. okay, then there's a huge fall in your quality of, of life. And that's what we face. I think we're, we're getting to the end of the days of, of abundant uh, fossil fuel energy. But how do you get over a, a, a downward spiral in all of this? I mean, even, even in government spending. Yeah. Because otherwise people are going to go bankrupt. Okay. Yeah, because I'm spending less because I've got less. Mm. So therefore, I buy less. Therefore, there's less jobs. So you're saying it's that those jobs. And have it's, got all, to it's also that if you've got a, you know, your debt to service and if your debt costs are going up as well, mm. uh, then you know that's why I think putting interest rates up will be far more effective than the bank expects, uh, because they don't. Even, they certainly at the at the level of the board, they don't take this into account. Some of the staff understand credit dynamics in the Bank of England. Not a lot, not enough, but some. Um, but the, the the board, the members of the monetary policy, what are they called? So the MPC, yeah, monetary, monetary policy, policy committee. committee. Yeah. They they don't understand it. Now, Danny Blanchfow is very th- th- effusive on that on Twitter. Recommend checking out Danny because he was a member of the MPC and he said what a bunch of drongos the rest of them were. <laughs> That's um, a good Australia. What a bunch of drongos. Yeah. So uh, the, the, do they need to, though? I guess that's the other question. So if we had you know, inflation getting out of control mm. or certainly rising sharply, wages not keeping pace with it, mm. we're going to moderate our buyer behaviour. I mean, we're going to struggle. We're going to spend less. That's going to bring prices down. Do you, does the... Does the bank actually have to do anything? Does I think it the bank should stand on it. The, 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 this is the trouble. Neoclassical economists convince themselves that everything could be controlled by controlling the rate of interest. Yeah. Okay. And they're wrong. If they did nothing at all, would we get the same effect? Yes, pretty much, without, without the disturbing effect of causing a credit crunch. Yeah. So to some extent, uh, they've just got to sit back and say, you know, we, we can't control this. Right. We what do you mean could. by that? So anyone who's got a loan at the moment is going to struggle to pay back that loan because interest rates have gone up. So if we, we, well, we're just adding fuel onto the fire. Well, we're actually reducing fuel because they're saying that the, the base rate interest won't be driven up, so it'll just be the market rate. Mm. And um, uh, and it depends on the banks themselves. I mean, we may, we may see, you know, if you decline in credit because it just becomes people doing their sums, they're not going to be able to finance taking on any more debt. Right. So the difference between the Bank of England uh, not even being there, mm. <laughs> just we just close it tomorrow mm. uh, and uh, we just let the economy run its course and find that, yes, there is this 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 credit, not a credit squeeze, this is living standard squeeze mm. that people mm. are feeling. Uh, and we're starting to see unemployment rise. The government then steps in and says, uh, okay, well, we need to start spending now because because uh, the economy is in a downturn. We're going toward, heading towards a recession. Uh, that's a that, that's a potential outcome. It makes no difference whether the Bank of England's there or not. 
Well, it's a, it's the strength of fiscal policy. I mean, mm. again, neoclassical theory yeah. disparaged monetary authority, uh, disparaged fiscal uh, power, and, and, and had argued for an enhanced role for monetary policy. Right. When you look at it, they were wrong when they first made the argument, and they've been wrong practically as well. So you're saying we don't need monetary policy at all? Uh, we need. I would like monetary policy in terms of things like a modern debt jubilee. That's yeah. the sort of policy I'd want to see. But in terms of thinking, controlling the rate of interest, else you find true in the economy. No, it was always nonsense. Yeah. A large part of it was because the way that Hicks, uh, well, Hicks didn't interpret Keynes. Hicks's neoclassical model, which he wrote before he read Keynes, pretty much argued that we knew the future. That's not. That's a simplifying assumption. You know, we know the future, and so therefore, the only thing which can vary how much we're going to invest is the rate of interest, because that changes the uh, net present value of the income stream we we know we're going to receive. So therefore, it's all about how important it is to control the rate of interest, and that's built into the whole fabric of neoclassical thinking. Mm. But in the real world, expectations of future profit determine how much you're willing to invest. Yeah, yeah. And if you have, you know, investing expectations of huge uh, future returns, then you know, 20% growth, who's going to care about a 2 or 3% rate of interest? Yeah. But if you expect nothing, well, then you're not going to invest. So you can't actually fine-tune the economy using the interest rate, and therefore the whole focus on monetary policy was yet another neoclassical fantasy. Let let businesses decide for themselves where they're heading, in other words, isn't it, really? it's you, you if Well, no, no, because then you say the government has a role in creating part of the money supply, which is the role of fiscal policy. So you'd want to have the government, and particularly if you're going to have a, 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 a private sector slump um, coming out of the fact that you know workers can't afford to buy those commodities anymore and so on, mm. uh, then you will need some, some government money creation. So, I would rather see that directed towards getting us towards a, a fossil fuel-free world and making that our main focus. So we've gone from uh, a deflationary environment to a heavily inflationary environment. We, it, we know the disruption in the middle that caused all of that, which has been oil prices and supply chain disruptions, which has spilled over into this sort of reorganisation of the workforce, which has pushed wages up. Yeah, and um, we're going to see more of that as you know, further climate uh, disasters come out. Adds to it because of all the supply issues yeah. that are, are related to that. So, um, so does this ever die down? Then, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, does this ever die down? Do we? No, this is the trouble because we are we are an overshoot. And this is the point which uh, isn't said enough in the climate literature itself. We are consuming far more of the resources of the planet that's sustainable. Mm. Uh, we, we should have learned the limits limit, the limits of the limits to growth 50 years ago. We didn't. So we're probably consuming two or three times as much per year as we should of the resources of the planet. And if, we, if we're going to have a sustainable future, we've got to go back to the stage where we're consuming far less than that. Yeah, and and that just means a fall in living standards. Right. And the only way that can be successfully uh, imposed without causing total breakdown in society is the rich have to consume less. Yeah, which they can, of course. Um, and I wonder whether. Yeah. Oh, really? They're such nice people. The rich. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everyone can really, and I wonder whether. And this is I'm going to be optimistic because we always end on a bad note on these. It's always very <laughs> pessimistic. I'm going to end on a good note. I do wonder whether. Uh, when we went through that uh, that beginning of uh, of COVID, and we were mm. all sitting at home or going out and riding mm. our bikes, and mm. weren't able to consume anything, I wonder how many people. I mean, it's very unfortunate for those people who are struggling with the with the illness, and it's been catastrophic to a lot of livelihoods. But those people who are managing all right were probably sitting there thinking, you know what, this isn't so bad. You know, it's there's less a lot stress. less stress. 
consuming mm. less, mm. life actually is easier. It's the boringness of being confined to quarters that was driving. If that happened without the health issue, uh, then yeah, it's 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 a more relaxing lifestyle. You, but um, but we've forgotten about it already. We've forgotten about it already. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to humanity. <laughs> we've all got the minds of goldfish. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. All right, good to talk, Steve. Uh, we're going to talk next week about uh, well, I, how, the Sonnenschein Mantel de Brue. <laughs> oh, it's going to love you. You're going to love the pronouncing. It's going to have you hard enough. Yeah, time. got a week to learn the concepts. Exactly. Yeah. All yeah. right. I'm uh, not quite sure. I'm looking forward to that one. But we'll catch you next week. Thank okay. you. So there we are, another debunking economics podcast for another week. Uh, we are back again next week. Thanks for listening in. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve King. See you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.